Hello and welcome to Rights on the Line, produced by Dublin-based human rights organization, Frontline Defenders. My name is Hasina and I'm your host. On today's episode, we're going to talk about elections and how they can impact human rights defenders. By looking at some of the federal elections that have taken place this year, we'll be able to see the different and nuanced ways political changes at the national level can impact the situation for those fighting for human rights in that country. Over the next half hour, we'll be moving region to region across the globe to discuss recent elections in Mexico, Colombia, Zimbabwe, Pakistan, and Cambodia. We're going to start with Zimbabwe. Following a coup in 2017, which saw Emerson Mnangagwa assume power, Zimbabwe had a national election on the 31st of July of this year. The leading candidates were Mnangagwa himself and the party ZANU-PF, which has been in power in Zimbabwe for decades, and the MDC Alliance, an electoral bloc made up of seven parties led by Nelson Chumisa. Shortly before the election, Rights on the Line spoke with Tawanda Chimini, director of Zimbabwe's Elections Resource Center, a think tank and advocacy organization that works on democracy and elections, which Mr. Chimini founded in 2010. The center works on civic participation, improvements in election processes, and oversight of these processes through observation. Transparency and legitimacy were extremely key issues in this very high-stakes election. In this work, um, we have grown into one of the biggest election stakeholders from a civil society perspective over the last eight years. And some of the things that we've been able to do over uh, this period has been to, um, number one, uh, look at how we can change civil society approaches to mobilization for civic participation, where uh, the conventional method had largely been civic education. And um, we opted for uh, mobilization with civic education just as a component of it, because at times the assumption that we found to be prevailing was that citizens were not participating because they didn't have information. Whereas our argument has been that citizens do not participate largely, especially in Zimbabwe, because they do not have confidence in the election process. Um, So, for instance, when you're looking at elections, our mobilization effort is going beyond simply saying to citizens, go and register to vote. But we are saying you must watch the process. You must protect your vote and you must escalate any inadequacies that you find relating to elections. So that kind of an approach to mobilization is something that has um, uh, been embraced by a lot of civil society organizations. And we've seen people moving from uh, the same, the old approach of simply focusing on civic and voter education to saying we need to do more. How do we talk about the secrecy of the ballot? How do we empower citizens so that they become more informed in their participation. So how do you get citizens to be more active in their participation and not passive? Um, We have also been part of um, the push to have um, a better voters' role, and now we do have a biometric voters' role. We we pushed for uh, the voter registration exercise to be extended after the first four phases of 2017, and this happened in 2017. 18 in January, getting into February. We have been at the forefront to compel the election commission to avail a voter's role um, uh, and a provisional voter's role was finally availed. We have also been pushing for the electoral commission to reverse its decision on the setting up of polling stations 
Again, this is something that has happened. So our advocacy drives have largely been successful. And this is something that we hope to continue even in the post-election phase of the election cycle. Then we have been promoting citizen observation of our election processes because of uh, the question of resources. Um, so our thinking has always been that um, it is next to impossible to deploy observers everywhere across the country whenever election processes are happening. So we've worked at mobilizing citizens, like I said, to not only vote, but to also watch the process and report on what they're seeing. And this model is something that we're going to be piloting in this election. But I think it's a great opportunity for us to test a sustainable model of citizen observation, which is not grounded in accredited observers uh, or trained observers, which, but which is quite empowering to citizens to actually say, as you're voting, watch the process. Umnagagwa ended up winning the election with 50.8% of the votes. This slight margin definitely put the legitimacy of the election process into question, and violence erupted at protests in the capital, Harare, when election results were announced. Rets on the Line actually spoke with Frontline Defenders board member Arnold Sunga on polling day and the week after. He went to Zimbabwe to participate in the election monitoring process. To hear what he had to say then, you can check out the bulletins we published at the end of July. But for today, we have him speaking on the position Zimbabweans are in, looking forward at this five-year term with ZANU-PF in power. Since the coup, Mnangagwa has been touting a vision of higher human rights standards under his leadership. But this narrative is seen by many as efforts to give a liberal and progressive face to the international community, while internally human rights remain an issue. It's difficult to have hope. It's difficult to have hope in the context of the national question, because uh, it simply means that it's going to be five years of struggle, five years of uh, uh, repression. Uh, it's difficult to imagine how the party that has been in power for 38 years can be the true agent for change. So we are in a conundrum where it's almost like a, a the Stockholm syndrome, where <laughs> you begin to rely on your oppressor and capture uh, to hope for your own freedom and um, safety. So, so I think Zimbabwe is in a very big fix because um, how do you genuinely expect the authorities that have been responsible for creating this uh, framework and climate of impunity to then be the ones that drive the agenda for true freedom, justice and peace in the country? In Cambodia, the federal election saw Hun Sen, the prime minister of three decades, quote-unquote win yet again in an election that seemed from the outside like a farce. Yes, that uh, we already uh, know. And during that election campaign, we also expected that no any thing uh, change. And uh, we, as a human rights organization, we don't... Uh, Pay attention, Mike, because uh, they had the campaign during the campaign, and uh, we agree NGO, a local NGO, that we would not uh, uh, support and would not uh, pay attention and to uh, uh, to recruit that volunteer or our staff to monitor that kind of election because we already said. Uh, understood that no any competition or it is not necessary for that our people and our NGO that want to monitor this kind of 
election process here. It's a contrast to the situation in Zimbabwe, where election transparency and monitoring became a key issue in this election. In Cambodia, human rights organizations and members of civil society collectively decided not to organize any election monitoring because there's no point. The ruling party, the Cambodian People's Party, was expected to win regardless. No other political party even won a single seat out of the 125 in Cambodia's National Assembly, and they have 19 other political parties. The new government, they, they were a pressure from the, the international pressure, and uh, they want to show that the, the new government that uh, thinking about the, the human rights and uh, a, a space for the, the, the NGO and as well for the to show the international uh, international community to see he uh, he want to uh, release that because of that his new government may open and uh, and uh, to maintain like the human rights and democracy again actually that the the people here they don't believe and they don't uh, think that this kind of adopt that the 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 uh, willing of the government to do so, but just like to uh, release or to reduce the pressure from the international community. There was much fanfare over the release of another wrongfully imprisoned HRD, Tep Vani. There too, it seems like the move is a front for the international community but not indicative of any real or sincere changes or commitment to change on human rights from the Cambodian government. In the 25th July national election in Pakistan, human rights was an important topic, as this election saw the highest ever number of openly trans candidates running for political office, and was the first year where trans people could register as voters with a new third gender category. However, the execution of what seemed to be very inclusive steps missed the mark in a few ways. First, many trans voters were turned away from the polls, whether or not they had identification correctly identifying them as belonging to this third gender category. Second, some trans candidates ended up boycotting the election because the candidates did not have the option to register with the third gender category. On top of all that, the winning party, PTI, led by now Prime Minister Imran Khan, is not considered to be very trans-friendly. In terms of the theme of today's episode, political changes at the national level, This inevitably feels like a setback, considering the recent strides of trans rights defenders in Pakistan. The previous government even passed a trans protection bill, the first piece of legislation in Pakistan ensuring the rights of the transgender community. Still, still we don't have any hope from this government. That's Shazadi Rai, trans human rights defender. Because last government did very well. They passed, uh, passed our bill. But right now, we don't see a such person or a such uh, elected candidate who are trans-friendly. Even no one can still contact a trans, uh, trans uh, activist for any feedback or guidance. Even Imran Khan, even the first speech of Imran Khan, we, are like, we think that they discuss our community, but they discuss minorities, religious minorities, Women's rights, but they don't discuss about transgenders. 
Members of the community were supposed to serve as election monitors at the polls, but at the last second, many were told that there was an issue with the ID cards that they needed to enter the polls as election monitors. Yes, they didn't give us a card. Even some of my friends, they give them a card, but at the moment of election, they said uh, that they can't give a card and they sent her back. No? The fact that members of the trans community were able to openly campaign as trans folks speaks to the slow but continued progress towards acceptance of the trans community in Pakistan, according to Shazadi. Still, none of these candidates were successful, and some campaigners experienced a backlash from local communities. Uh, actually, uh, yes, uh, some of our trans friends are uh, standing in election, but uh, no one can be in uh, win. And it's quite uh, difficult for them to start their campaign. Even some of the uh, areas in KPK, Mansterata um, area, and uh, here the people are even destroy their posters, and they even don't allow them to uh, to did their campaign, election campaign properly. This election is a textbook example of the ways both political power and social attitudes can work together to either advance or counter the promotion of human rights. The campaigns of some trans advocates are a positive indicator for the acceptance of Pakistan's trans community, but negative stereotypes remain an obstacle. But actually the issue is people are not accepting us very much. Even the society isn't, uh, isn't able to accept us uh, in them. And the issue is actually creating the society. The main issue is not society mindset. And the social norm is connected in Pakistan with transgender. They, they all are dancers and they all are sex workers. And that's why uh, we need to fight for our rights as well. But we need some society space. I'll just repeat Shazadi here because of our poor Skype connection. She says, the social norm is connected. In Pakistan, people think transgender people are all dancers or sex workers, and that's why we need to fight for our rights. We need some society, or civil society, space. The July election in Mexico is probably the only arguably positive election we're going to talk about today. The Mexican public went to the polls on the first of the month and elected Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, referred to by his initials as AMLO, the first left-wing politician in Mexico's history. His successful election is considered to represent the possibility for a much-needed change in Mexico's human rights standards. Daniela Malpica is the director of an organization called Justicia, Reconciliación y Derechos Humanos, or Justice, Reconciliation, and Human Rights, which applies a transitional justice lens to the advancement of human rights in Mexico. Transitional justice is a term that refers to a temporary system to help a country move forward from mass atrocities or internal conflict that has caused serious human rights violations. It's a temporary model that is meant to establish a permanent peace, to help the country move on at both a state and community level, and has historically included tribunals and truth commissions geared towards reconciliation, accountability, and collective memory. Why transitional justice? Uh, as you know, its, its mechanisms are designed to, to have um, to, to aid societies that have had massive amounts of atrocities committed. 
So that's why, because we don't have any kind of mechanisms that can actually deal with the amount of victims we have. And I don't, I don't think we have the technical and the human and the economic capacity to even rebuild our security law enforcement and like the general attorney's office and to even get close to truth and justice to all these people. So transitional justice offers um, a path that might not be perfect because it never is, but it's a path to actually get the, the victims close to some kind of truth and justice that otherwise we won't be able to get them anyhow. Um, also, um, we do have a reparations office that was actually kind of copied out from the Colombian one uh, that they've had built over their, their, their attempts of transition. But without the other two, it was just kind of a victim's office for any kind of felony and crime. And it's, it's obviously, it doesn't even have enough funds as it is. So we need to do something about the violent that, violence that has spiked over the, 12, the last 12 years. Um, what else? Why, why do I think? Oh, and um, I previously worked on the... I worked in, in the state of Michoacán, which in a, f a few years ago uh, had a, a conflict spike there between self-defense groups, a criminal group, and security forces from the municipalities, the state, and federal, federal law enforcement from all the levels. There were military there, federal police, uh, shootouts. It was, it was around two, two and a half years that it was uh, going on. And at the end, what we sometimes don't get out in the cities is that commu how community works, small town works. And transitional justice also with, with restorative justice mechanisms might help them because back in the towns, everybody knows everybody. So retributive justice might not actually be what they're looking for because at the end of the day, their perpetrator might be their cousin's cousin or even their uncle or, or, or their uncle be the perpetrator of their friend. You know, like it, it, they see each other every day. They know perfectly who they are. And, and I'm not sure that what they're looking for is our concept of justice because they have to rebuild their community ties. So... So that's what I'm interested in, in applying them and trying to, to work out a, like a Mexican recipe for what could work. As for AMLO's government, when we talked, Daniela articulated some inevitable concerns from the human rights community. Hopes are very, very high. Um, he, he, he explains that he, he comes from the poor, so he knows what, what they need. Um, some people even call him a populist. And regarding the human rights community, it's always been, the relationship with him has always been, um, in Spanish we say accidentada, which is like bumpy. Uh, bumpy. Uh, why? Because he, he says that 
NGOs are, are there, there are many or in general that NGOs are posh. That's, that's the term in Spanish that he uses, Fifi. Uh, they're posh. So he makes, he even makes like this polarization between NGOs. On the other hand, he speaks about uh, peace and about that he's, he's going to work with NGOs. But then he again makes a statement about posh NGOs. And then he continues saying that, that, that human rights are going to be a priority and, and that it's the first, one of the first things that he's going to look at. And so I, I guess that my feeling and, and our experience is that we do want to work with him because we do want to work with the government. But we don't exactly know what the terms will be because he's always been, one day he says something and then he goes and calls Posh the NGOs. And then he, he, he tries to make amends and he does, but so it's, it's rough, it's, it's bumpy. And from my position on my topics, I think he, he started talking about amnesties uh, in December without really knowing, I think, what they were really, what it really, what it would really be to, to have an amnesty plan. And we started uh, working and trying to frame them that it wouldn't work without a transitional justice context, context. And I think they found that through the just the transitional justice uh, speech and, and, and they would, they could kind of savage that idea. And somehow they they now have retaken this idea into a peace process that has not been very clear. And they're making some forums around the country that have been also very bumpy uh, because they have been very rushed. But the expectations are high. They're not even in office yet, but they're organizing events. Um, so it's 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 weird. <laughs> I don't know how else to. Well, on the one hand, the majority of the countries we've talked about seem to have such little hope for national governments to really steer them towards the advancement of human rights. AMLO's election promises to completely fix a large and complex country like Mexico, where different states have extremely different social and political situations in just one presidential term, is resulting in high hopes, high stakes, and high pressure on the first moves of his new government, which assume office on the 1st of December. I mean, AMLO, it's a very complex person. I think that he has good intentions, but I also believe that his ego might get in the way. So he actually, he actually, he's, he's, he's portrayed himself as kind of a messiah here. So he, he, he's being like, um, I forget the word in English. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> He's been trying, like, portraying himself like he's the person that's going to be able to bring peace. And bringing peace to a country like this is not going to be that easy. And I don't think if his own uh, soberbias and his own pride won't let him see that that's not possible and that, like, taking baby steps toward peace is actually good enough for me, just even changing the, the security strategy is good enough for for anybody really. Like and having a plan to get the military out and that would that that's enough for one president 
trying not to get the murder rates up by doing that. That I mean, if if he socialized that this is going to take decades, hopes would get down. People would, I think, people would actually understand. I mean, we live in this country too. We know how harsh the situation is. We would understand, but. If he keeps saying that he's going to do it in three years or by the end of his term, it's going to be a tough disappointment. There's no shame in saying, look, the country's a mess. We need to take baby steps because that's what we need to do and be realistic. But the, highs are, the hopes are so high that, I mean, they were saying the other day, I think they, the, the person that is going to be the secretary of, of public security said that he was going to lower the the murder rates, which are actually between 21 to 25 murders for 1,000 persons. It's very high, uh, to four in a year or something like that, which is, or or in three years, which either way, it's ridiculous. He was harshly criticized on the media the next day, obviously, because that's impossible. Returning to our original question, how can political changes at the national level impact the situation for human rights defenders? Well, Mexico's election is demonstrating that a political change is only a first step in what will surely be a long series of shifts in the political, social, and economic arenas that will need to trickle down through Mexico's justice system and state governments. A central takeaway here for those trying to understand the situation for human rights defenders in any country is that these shifts can take a long period of concentrated, multifaceted efforts Band-Aid solutions and quick fixes will not sustain. One thing that I will give him is that he is the only politician we've ever known that has actually visited like every single municipality in in Mexico, which it's a big country. Uh, Also, he's been campaigning for a while. He's tried, this is his third try, and at last he's success to become president. So that gave him a lot of time to actually walk the country. So... He does know the, the, the impact the violence has had in our country. And so in, in that perspective, I think that he does have a best interest at heart. He, he, I do believe that he has a good sense of, of he has good sensibility and that's why he, he just said amnesties because he knows that many of the people involved in the drug trade are not necessarily bad people were trying to, or, or maybe they were pressured, like, um, like what happened in Colombia, that either you cooperate or, and receive money or they would kill a family member or something. And on the other hand, I do think that he doesn't have technical skills in order to implement the plan. And I do believe that we are going to be in a transition for decades, that it's not going to, so he's not, I'm not expecting him to fulfill all, all his promises regarding human rights, because I don't think anyone could have had delivered, but I could expect from him to lower the tone and lower expectations. Speaking of Colombia, they too had an election this year, which saw the exit of former president Juan Manuel Santos, who during his presidency managed to adopt the historic peace agreement with the FARC guerrilla group and begin the transition to peace after more than 50 years of armed conflict in Colombia. However, the newly elected President Ivan Duque almost immediately declared his concerns with the historic peace agreement, which is a result of eight years of negotiation. 
seemingly putting Colombia's recent and fragile peace process at risk. Since the accord was signed, there has been an unprecedented surge in the killings of human rights defenders in Colombia. According to Stop the Killings, a report that was released earlier this year and authored by Jim Lochran, the head of the HRD Memorial Project, this is a result of challenges in implementing the necessary political reform, as well as corruption, social and political polarization, and the ongoing presence of paramilitary and other armed groups, amongst other issues. Abandoning the accord would surely make things worse for those defending human rights. It's still quite early to make a call either way, but it certainly provides compelling evidence for countries like Mexico, who are at the outset of a transitional period, to adopt a comprehensive and long-term approach to peace, justice, and the advancement of human rights. Frontline Defenders was founded in Dublin in 2001 to provide the resources for security and protection of human rights defenders at risk around the world. Rights on the Line is a new podcast produced in-house by Frontline Defenders to present the work, the struggles, and the perspectives of HRDs at risk. Special thanks for this episode go to our guests, Daniela Malpica, Shizadi Rai, Tawanda Chimini, the Cambodian HRD we spoke to, as well as Frontline Defenders Research and Training Fellows, Daniela Reveron Fuenmayor and Tanya Singh, for their research and consultation during the production of today's episode. To hear previous episodes of Rights on the Line, please go to frontlinedefenders.org slash podcast. Our music is from Let's Start at the Beginning by Lee Rosevere.